Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. You know it is Friday. It is the one and only time for V for Vela's. You can find him over hanging out, lurking in the Discord. He is the Dark Raven of the Deep State, dropping bombs like no one else can. And with that being said, Vela's, what's up, buddy? How are you? Wow, guys, what a week! <laughs> I don't know where you want to begin, man. So I got well. This on. is this is this is the second show on the alternative archaeology stuff. Ooh, we're we're gonna nice. We're, we're going to go a little over on time, so I apologize. That's and I fine. Got, I got two housekeeping items for the, those of you in the audience. Well, a couple of housekeeping items. The first is I will not be back until Friday the 15th of July. Uh, I got to go do some stuff, and I don't want to risk telling you all I can do a show when, when I can't. Uh, before we get into the archaeology slash ancient history slash unknown, um, we got two items we got to cover real quick. Uh, just throwing these out here because uh, they've occurred recently, and i got to say it now because I'm not waiting three weeks. Um, Patrick Ryan's been intimating about a deal taking place over the Ghislaine-Maxwell thing, and Mm. um, a couple of days ago he made a comment where he basically said, we're going to exchange Julian Assange for Ghislaine-Maxwell. And just just this morning, the the British have authorized moving forward with extraditing him to the United States. Interesting. So his take on it is, is, is somehow, some way, they're going to find a way to send Ghislaine to the UK where she'll serve about a year and then poof, she's just going to disappear into the ether. The second is, uh, I went absolutely off last night at like one in the morning on the Discord page, the V for Vellis um, uh, landing section of, of the discord page. Um, you know, here at rogue and a lot of the other folks in the alternative space, we've all been asking the same question over and over and over and over and over again. Every time there's one of these hearings, especially with Fauci, we all, whether it's V CJ, me, anybody on the show, we've all been asked the same question. Why are they not asking Fauci? Are you making money off these shots? Exactly. Now the obvious question. Yes. Because yeah, he has patents on the Moderna drug specifically, but the, the rabbit hole goes way deeper than that. And as Crypto Cowboy was talking the other day, uh, it's the Kennedy book. Uh, you got to read the Robert Kennedy book. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there beyond just what's in the book, but the book is is a good center since you you know deal with the size of the text in the book. But but it's a good central source. So it was not the alternative media. It was not Fox News. It it was somebody on Twitter picked a clip out of the hearings yesterday. I know I missed it where Rand Paul asked Fauci, can you tell me if anyone on the vaccine approval committees ever received money from the people who make vaccines? Do you know what Fauci said? He said, people who receive royalties are not required to divulge that information. Wow. F you, you asshole. Wow. I lost it last night, and I know for those of you who may have read my comment, because what torqued me off is, as a former federal contractor across multiple agencies, including Health and Human Services, I've said repeatedly, if any of us as contractors or feds with whom we worked ever did anything like what Health and Human Services staff can get away with, we would be in jail. 
Yeah, you would. It's illegal. We can't take money from contractors to the government. I mean, what would happen if the Department of Defense uh, uh, selection committees who choose weapon systems were allowed to get money from Northrop or Boeing? I mean, what the hell? Or the Department of Agriculture can get money from Monsanto, which I'm not saying they're not. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of uh, screwed up crap in government. I'll be the first to acknowledge it. But dear, the arrogance of the man to he's even a, say he, that. He, he sickens me at, at a deep core. He sickens me. Oh, anyway, that just on top of everything else this week, that just set, set me off to no end. So, yeah, so we evidently there's a deal in the works that we're going to exchange uh, Julian Assange for uh, Ghislaine. And that's how we're going to protect uh, Prince Andrew, among others. Um, but anyway, so today's topic, um, and I apologize for leaving for, uh, three weeks after I do this. Cause I know a number of you are going to be like, wait, 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 no, Velos, I got to ask you a question. Um, so I had the program on the 24th of May and that was to build a foundation for what we're talking about today. Mm. And you know, as usual, this is going to be high level. We can always go into more detail later. And if you didn't catch the program on the 24th, uh, please go to the rogue news website or rumble and see if that program is still available out there because you're probably going to want to um you're pro- <laughs> probably going to want to uh check that one out if you didn't hear it. Um now today's focus in the beginning is this in two parts. I'm going to focus on something contemporary. And then we'll kind of get into the to uh, the ancient world. Um so um we're going to focus in large part on what's known as the human interference task force, not what do you call it? Inference, but human interference task force. Uh, this was a project within the overall program when they designed and developed the Yucca mountain nuclear storage site in Nevada. Uh, the research and planning for both of those sites started around 1981. The conclusions and things we're going to cover about the human interference task force are going to directly correlate to things we've already been covering about the ancient world. So when the department of energy, um, was going to plan building a single location in the United States to store all waste rather than than storing on site, which is usually how they do it. They keep the waste at like nuclear generating sites or what have you, or multiple sites. They wanted a single site inside the United States. The other thing they wanted to do in the construction of the facility was they wanted to incorporate measures into the design to both warn and keep people away from the location, not kidding, for 10,000 years because of the uh, danger of the radioactive materials that would be stored there. Hmm. And they created a team of experts to develop plans on both preventing access for future generations and communicating the the danger that was stored there. Now, the research group who performed this was called the Human Interference Task Force. Now, I'd mentioned on on the show I did on the 24th that of the many authors and researchers I covered was, was a gentleman named Freddie Silva. And I said, you know, Silva, more than anybody else, keeps asking a lot of his, his work, why are so many global ancient sites so overbuilt? Uh, especially if we're assuming that they're just basic temples or sites of, of observance or, or civic buildings. There right. had, to be a, had to be a reason. Even when later societies or conquerors modified those sites for their beliefs or even built on top of the originals like you often see in South America. Show me, show me a cathedral in South America and I'll show you a temple uh, immediately underneath it. Um, many of those sites are still revealing a lot of their secrets later in time. So to oversimplify, these are mechanisms for sending the most critical of messages across time for future generations. And, you know, I discussed on that program that, that many of the, of the well-known ancient sites around the world and some that were still digging out of the ground, like Gobekli Tepli include, you know, lunar and solar cycles that are, are important, especially if you're dealing with growing crops uh, celestial alignments, complex geometric formulas, and many other important secrets. And one of the unknowns is of all those sites, are there messages or information incorporated into their designs or located there that we haven't found yet? Now, the work of this human interference project gives us some clues. The original research was conducted by both the Department of Energy and the Bechtel Corporation. Now, I've mentioned the Bechtel Corporation a couple of times. They're a private, Bechtel's a privately held company uh, up in the Northwest um, by the Bechtel family. Right. Uh, the Bechtel family is very powerful, very influential. Uh, pretty much most of Bechtel's top leadership 
were part of Ronald Reagan's um, original cabinet, you know, George Schultz and Al Haig and all those guys, they were all, I mean, they're all former government insiders, but they were all former Bechtel people. Of course, amusingly, they were intended to be on George Bush's cabinet, but, you know, we know what happened. Um, the team was comprised of geologists, linguists, astrophysicists, architects, artists, uh, artists and writers. Um, the project lasted decades. It included expertise from around the world. This also included, in spite of it being the Cold War, um, uh, what do you call it, that they had folks from behind the Iron Curtain that were assisting their effort. Um, the importance of this project was considered so important that, you know, we needed an all-hands-on-deck approach and the Cold War be damned, which is kind of cool if you think about it. I've read some of the work the Hungarians and the, and the uh, folks in Poland contributed uh, before the Cold War ended to the project. It was, it was all pretty, pretty interesting. The other thing, too, is, is the, the thing that kind of tipped me off about this goes back to my days working for a government research lab and the conferences and things I used to attend because as I was shooting the gristle with some people in a bar one night and we were, we, the topic of the ancient world came up, somebody at the table looked at me and goes, well, you know about the, the human interference project. And I said, no, <laughs> do, do I need to get on Sippernet or Nippernet, you know, which are the classified networks and go submit a request for information. And they all kind of laughed and they're like, oh no, it's in the, it's in the public domain. But most people have never even heard of it. Mm. So, so go dig into that and, and get back to us, you know, kind of thing. So one of the big elements of this program was something known as semiotics. And semiotics, rather than linguistics, um, semiotics is the study of how symbols and signs communicate information the way linguistics studies languages. Now, the two are similar because they both kind of communicate and convey information. And a letter in an alphabet is still a symbol, but it doesn't convey, like in our contemporary world, what an emoji conveys as far as information or thought or feeling or emotion or whatever. Now, we've kind of been here before, and I'm going to use the ancient Sumerians uh, as a demonstration because they're one of the oldest keyword known civilizations out there. Their writing script, you could argue, was a form of caste system. Yeah. Uh, the symbol of the bull for the average person in a market meant you could go buy cattle or meat if you saw that image. Uh, you know, I'm joking. Unlike today where cattle are just dropping over. Um, Nothing to see there. 10,000 cattle just dropping. It's the heat, right. bro. It's the heat. Uh, we, there was, there's a vigorous discussion on the Discord channel by a number of our, our well-informed listeners who, who have spoken to friends in that part of the world who said it, it, it appears it may be there was a bad antibiotic dose that was given to the cattle. Plus they did it at the, at the heat of day, which you don't want to do because it put the animals into shock, but we'll see. Oh, wonderful. So for the Sumerians, if you were a bit more educated and you saw the symbol of a bull, you also, also knew that that symbol was the sound on if you were constructing words. A bit further still, you knew that that symbol was the number one. Uh, even further, you knew it represented the supreme deity in their pantheon of gods named Anu. The folks on this project were trying to use semiotics to project future communication methods through symbols rather than vocabulary because they were concerned about how languages will change. Now, that work started in the early 1980s, which was long before, thanks to our smartphones and similar, we started basically repeating everything from the Sumerian script to the Egyptian uh, script and similar through the use of both um, a physical symbol or object that represents multiple concepts at one time rather than just a single sound, which is very interesting if you think about it. Many discoveries were made about our own assumptions, too, on this team. One of the folks who contributed content because he was busy and he couldn't, he couldn't be involved full time, they reached out to the famous astronomer Carl Sagan. And they said, what do you recommend as far as the work we're doing? And he said, well, certainly you want to incorporate some kind of a skull and crossbones as one of the many warning symbols. But yet, because this team was made up of such a diverse group of people, many of those of Latin background said, well, wait a minute, in, especially in Mexico today, that could be interpreted as being a place of celebrating one's ancestors. So we got we to gotta not have a Western-centric view here. We got we to gotta really think this through. So the goals of the team were that messages had to be left, first of all, in materials of the utmost durability, as well as a wide variation in messages. 
the variation being necessary to account for language and cultural differences over a 10,000 year period. Now, the variation thing caught my attention because if you think of maybe the top five ancient sites around the world, they all possess wide variations in construction and communication of their messages. And so we've been here before again kind of thing. Now, the Sandia Labs issued a report from the team in 1993 after they kind of refined uh, the goals and what they were doing, that they said the, the messages that need to be sent non-linguistically to any future visitors to nuclear waste sites or this site had to use this kind of wording to conceptually get their minds around what are we trying to say. Hobo sermons, not cymatics, semiotics, S-E-M-I-O-T-I-C-S. Um, the first of these is, this place is a message and part of a system of messages, pay attention to it. Said another way, that the structures or whatever are not, are, are not uh, architecture, but it's part of a, the, the system itself is a message. The second point was, sending this message was important to us because we considered ourselves a powerful culture. Third, this place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing of value is here. And equally, no tombs or, or things like that are here. Four, what is here is dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about that danger. The next one is the danger is in a particular location. The further you move towards the center, the, the closer you're getting to the danger that exists here. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. And the last one was, the danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. So to make the site appear as a warning, they had several options. The first was, don't do anything at all. Just, just leave it as, as barren landscape out in Nevada. Uh, a number of the researchers said, if you look at the tombs that have been left undisturbed the longest, those were the ones that weren't marked. You put a big a big pyramid or something on top of a tomb, you're going to invite every grave robber in the area to go, go dig there. Um, however, many of the other researchers said, no, the danger of this site is too great to allow future generations to discover it by accident. So we need some kind of structure. So one of the first concepts they came up with, and many of them are very similar, is a landscape of thorns, a mass of irregularly sized spikes that were coming out of the ground in all the directions. The next was a spike field, uh, a series of extremely large spikes coming out of the ground at different angles. The third was spikes bursting through a grid, that an actual grid pattern would be laid out on the ground that you could see from the air with spikes coming out at, at, at multiple angles. Uh, earthworks, large mounds of earth shaped like lightning bolts, uh, or shaped um, like concrete structures emanating from the edges of a squared site. Uh, the shapes would be strikingly visible from the air. This was interesting. They wanted to create uh, multiple artificial hills or platforms around the location in the surrounding mountainside so that future generations would go to those platforms on purpose and be able to see from up high that something was down there that it's meant to be found, but it's not meant to be disturbed. Um, Hobo, send me a message. I'll spell it for you on Discord, and I know you're kidding. Uh, the next one was a black hole, uh, a giant slab of basalt uh, on the land to in, intensify the heat uh, and making the area uninhabitable or unfarmable. A landscape of rubble, making it look like something that had been there was destroyed. And then the last one was a series of forbidding blocks, a huge series of house-sized stone blocks painted black or colored black in a way that would last long over time and arranged in an irregular square grid. Um, the blocks being intended to make the entire area totally unsuitable for future use. Any of the spike construction ideas had problems with cost. Uh, the Department of Energy, maybe the DOE, uh, but they didn't want to bankrupt the taxpayer while they're building this thing. So one of the angles they came up with was, say it with me, to mimic things done in the ancient world. They pre-designed, constructed spikes that locked into place like puzzle pieces. And my first thought about that was the famous site at Pumapunku in Bolivia, the way that the stones there at Pumapunku uh, actually are designed in a way that they all kind of lock into place. 
Um, the spike design the Department of Energy came up with is also designed with uh, forms of drainage and features to avoid damage from wind. Um, the other idea, which was central or very critical to this, was the creation of what you'd essentially call a visitor center. It would be a structure buried underground, but on raised earth. So it'd be noticeable that something's there, uh, inviting future generations to, to perhaps dig there and try and uncover it. Once excavated, and there's pictures and things of these places you can look at online. Uh, once you dig this area out, you would find like big, long panels uh, that have various information carved into them that would identify uh, the site with various warnings about what's there. And of course, the minute I started hearing an intentionally buried site to be found by future generations, my first thought was Gobekli Tepe. Um, other ideas included an octagon-like shape to how the walls would be designed with thorns on top of it. Uh, each of the eight sides of the structure would have various pictograms and attempts at future languages to leave warnings in as many forms of communication as possible. A Swiss researcher named Emil Kowalski came up with the idea of as much area denial as possible. His recommendation was making the entrance to the site only from a practically inaccessible location to guarantee only advanced future, only advanced future societies would, would be able to detect the site. He also was thinking in terms of the, the more difficult you make it to get there, logically, the more advanced a society would have to be to, to discover what's there. The messaging was envisioned, and this is important, to be in four increasing levels of information. So as you go through each level of information, you're, you're getting more and more detailed about what's there. And the visitor center or the, the, the central mound site, which was like a series of, of walls that you could walk in there and then you would see all this data up on, on those walls, would be the fourth or most highly detailed information. And they would include periodic tables of the kinds of materials stored there. Importantly and interestingly, star maps. Star maps to help future generations indicate when the site was constructed and then when it should no longer be a threat due to radioactivity. And of course, that last part, that's straight out of Graham Hancock's work and others about many of the ancient sites around the world, because Graham and other authors believe that most of the world's ancient sites are indicating three dates. The date of the world's last great catastrophe that started the Ice Ages, the date of when the site was constructed, and the date of when the next catastrophe would occur. Now, that's interesting because these folks were doing this work in the human interference project starting in the 1980s. Graham Hancock really didn't start getting into what I just said. I mean, he was doing work in the 90s, but he didn't really start delving down into that specifically until the 2000s. The part of this that gets a little weird also is, is, is they wanted to use religion as a warning. So one of the, the key semiotic experts from the Bechtel team, a guy named Thomas Seebeck, came up with a psychological concept that could be used to protect future generations from these sites. They literally wanted to create global religion or religions. And, and I'll let that soak in for a second. They wanted to create uh, long-lived religions based on what they called the atomic priesthood. Uh, one of the even wilder ideas about this was they wanted to breed cats, I'm not making this up, whose skin glows at night when they're near radioactive material as a form of warning system and incorporate. <laughs> I'm not making that up. Wow. You know, how many, uh, you, you, you know how many 50-year-old single Karens would love to have a cat that glows in the dark? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, they went into ideas of the atomic priesthood and the glowing cats. Uh, there's some articles out there, like in the New Yorker and stuff, that, that talk about this. Atomic now, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to portray Seebeck as some sort of world economic foreign goon or something, um, because these these folks were not really connected to any of the globalist organizations that that give us heartburn. The point is, is, is they were told attack this problem from every angle that comes to mind. You're the world's experts in a number of different fields. You know, everything from what are the most uh, long-lasting materials we could use in the building, how do we do this, et cetera, et cetera. So they said, go, go you know, have at it. And so Seebeck's like, okay. Um, he wrote a number of papers outlining why symbols and frightening-looking structures might not be enough to save future generations from killing themselves with our nuclear waste. Now, I've read some of the guy's work. He is brilliant. So his thinking was the only way, way to make sure this message gets through time is through religion and moral teachings about the dangers of these sites. 
Seebeck felt that eventually you would begin with a structured evolution where it was just a global education program in our contemporary world, but that over time it would kind of evolve into a global religion, including myths and legends with various moral teachings and guidance. Now, the final government report removed Seebeck's suggestions because obviously what he was saying was a bit explosive, especially the idea of creating yet another global, global elite who are holding on to this sacred knowledge. But for the purposes of what I'm covering today, think about this whole thing, though, in the context of most of the world's religions today, religions who've gone through so many iterations over thousands of years from their foundations. You could make the argument that when we hear about either long-lost belief systems or even in our current belief systems, that there are hidden mysteries, ascended masters, lost knowledge in our belief systems, etc., that Again, we may have been here before that there may be elements in the world's belief systems that are left over from prior generations. Now, the summary on the Human Interference Project is that this project sponsored several similar efforts. The Europeans have an organization known as the Nuclear Energy Agency, or NEA. Uh, they began an effort called the Preservation of Records, Knowledge, and Memory Across Generations, known by the term RKNM. Uh, that effort picked up where the Human Interference Project concluded and has continued the same kind of research. Even at the private level, we have things like the Global Seed Vault and what's known as the MOM Project or Memory of Mankind Project in Switzerland. The Swiss project is privately funded and includes the use of special ceramics to store critical information on ceramic plates. Now, when I was reading that, my first thought was, boy, that sounds familiar. Some of you out there might know about these various legends about, about multiple halls of records around the world, one of those famously being underneath the paws of the Sphinx. They say ancient knowledge is stored on golden plates at those locations. The Human Interference Project, in the end, also made a study of many ancient sites around the world because those achieved at least one of their primary goals, which was something that would survive many millennia of time. And the more they studied those sites, the more they realized what I was talking about on the show back on the 24th. There are rumors they also realized many of the world's ancient sites are, say it with me, far older than current archaeology is going to acknowledge. And again, these folks began their work back in the early 1980s. Of course, you have to wonder, didn't it occur to them, why are so many sites built around the world seemingly from a single design plan or program, if you will, even though they're all radically different? incorporating the same goals that you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve how to, how to warn future generations around nuclear waste. What are these sites trying to communicate? And I was struck by the words the project used in their final reports to the government, including that one of the many ways to convey this information I'm quoting is, how will we help human beings in the future make informed decisions how do we leave behind libraries, time capsules, and physical markers, unquote? Now, that sure sounds like most of the world's ancient sites, if you ask me. And if you think about modern sites today that are, are quite old, whether it's the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the monument to the Battle of Borodino in Russia, there's a number of temples in India that were built in the 1500s, 1600s, the Arche de Triomphe in France, even some of the famous Roman buildings that still survive in Italy today. They were all built with considerable care, but are they going to last as long as the pyramids, Stonehenge, Machu Picchu, Gobekli Tepe, Nan Midal, the original foundation of Angkor Wat, not what we see at Angkor Wat today, but the original site that is beneath Angkor Wat, the list goes on. Angkor Wat. Yes, sir. Um, so it's kind of ironic that what began as a basic study of this topic evolved into this massive multi-year effort to study how to send messages across time in this case about nuclear waste. The United States and later Europe considered investing this much energy to protect future generations from nuclear waste. They also, the team in the United States actually won an award from the United Nations for something, um, speaking loosely, a, like one of the most important efforts of contemporary mankind to protect future generations kind of thing. This is what we would do to protect future generations from nuclear waste. What would we do if the message was even more important? Would we build numerous sites around the globe, perhaps? And then equally remembering the four increasing levels of message communication the research team designed as part of their thinking. Could we not say the same thing applies to many of the ancient sites around the world? 
And have we only discovered the first or the second levels of communication? There's also a project underway, as I'm speaking with all of you today, to build what is known as the long count clock. It operates using only the motion of the earth and weights that kind of constantly counterbalance each other to operate with no human management required. And it is designed to measure a 10,000-year cycle. Hmm. And it will only be able to be accessed in its specially designed location if future generations can discover how to access it. Put another way, only if future generations have developed enough socially, mathematically, and scientifically will they understand the clues that will lead them to this uh, series of doorways that will allow them to access that clock. Not if uh, Bill Gates and uh, Klaus Schwab have their ways. Oh, wait, we're going to get to them in a second on this topic. You're going to love this. So as we shift back into the ancient world, we have to kind of think about our predecessors prior to the last ice age. We have clues, but we have no definitive answers on the cultures who preceded the last ice age. We don't know if the believed to exist two global powers were at odds with one another in a form of Cold War or whether they were friendly with each other. And I'm speaking of the ubiquitous Atlantis. Atlantis. Yeah, and in the Pacific, Mu or Lemuria. Yeah. We cannot even be too certain as to the degree of cooperation between them after the catastrophe struck the Earth. What were their goals? What were their ambitions? What were their beliefs? We're following patterns they left behind for us, but are those in our best interest? It's hard to say. The monuments they left behind say yes, but we don't have the whole picture. Now, the other mind scrambler. I mentioned before on another show about the Human Genome Project and its correlations with Epstein's work and a lot of the things we're dealing with right now on the COOF. There's a theory out there that either the Human Genome Project had this original purpose of just analyzing human DNA, but a discovery was made that changed the direction or the researchers already knew for some reason. When you look at the kinds of money and resources that were thrown at that effort, it was almost as much as the space program. Now, I'm a big fan of space research and the Hubble Space Telescope, and I'm very much looking forward to the Webb Telescope's pictures that are coming in. But we haven't invested in space the way we've invested in war or other human endeavors. So why this massive investment in understanding human DNA? More specifically, many of you have probably heard this often repeated comment that after studying human DNA and after various stages of evolution, we have in our DNA, in our human DNA, what they call junk code, the DNA that's left over from from prior genetic features that are no longer needed or we no longer have uh, as a species. It's basically, we can't even figure out what it is. That's what it comes down to. Yes. Now, the interesting part of that is we're the only animal on this planet that has that level of junk DNA code. Yeah. What What if it's not junk? Exactly. We can and, only build so many... Could you also, when you, you're on the topic of DNA, why don't you also tell us about the number 37? We can get into that later, if you want to approach that. Yeah, you. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that one to you. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little less red on that one. So if, if you think about it, we can only build so many pyramids on this planet or other structures to leave behind knowledge or messages for future generations. What's the ultimate storage uh, mechanism? Human DNA is the ultimate storage mechanism. Yeah. If you think about how they say a single strand of DNA, you could put the entire Library of Congress and what the Vatican's got on a single strand of DNA. Correct. There's a, there's a belief out there that either the researchers of the Human Genome Project knew in advance or discovered during the project that there is data in our DNA, that that is the fourth level knowledge that was left behind. And if that's true... <laughs> to what Visa said a little moment ago. I'm not sure I want the World Economic Forum, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderbergers, <laughs> Lord Malik Brown, and Bill Gates sitting on that kind of knowledge. But it does beg the question, did they learn something? Have they translated, perhaps, if this is indeed correct, have they translated what's in our DNA? And is that why now? Because I asked on a prior show in a couple of different ways. The ability to enforce what they're doing globally has existed really since about the mid-1980s, if not even the early 1980s. They never pulled the trigger. They didn't pull the trigger in the 90s. But they started pulling the trigger in the 2000s. Why? There had to be a reason. And I'm talking about global control, digital economy, the list goes on. So this leads us to ancient AI. Now, we've had a lot in the news lately about artificial intelligence, which I find funny. 
If we ask ourselves, what is technology? In the contemporary world, especially the United States and Europe, the last 500 years, we would identify technology in terms of physical tools. And especially the last 20 to 30 years, we would think of technology in terms of information technology. But in the contemporary world, couldn't we say that advanced farming or stonework is also a form of technology? Is not medicine a form of technology? Oh, absolutely. Prior to 10,000 years ago, what was technology to them? We don't know. There have been some theories getting kicked around. And I, again, the, the, uh, the think tank folks, we were kicking this one around because the comment that was made by some folks, that, and this goes back to the Chan Thomas book, and the thing about the CIA debriefing and then buying up all the copies of his book. There's, you know, there's not necessarily going to be a big data center sitting in a Tibetan mountain somewhere that's been running for 10,000 years. But it does beg the question, is there something running for the past 10,000 years? And it is a form of living intelligence. It may already exist. Something built before the last ice age. And the phrase has come into being during the whole COVID situation about how the entire event was an intelligence test, the ultimate intelligence test. If you pass, you and your offspring survive. It begs the question, are we as much at the mercy of certain globalist leaders or are we also at the mercy of some form of artificial intelligence that either was left behind by prior generations or has been hijacked by our globalist friends? It's the ultimate example of the matrix yet one who's real. And for any of you who are fans of Star Trek, uh, the old show, the original show with uh, yeah. Nimoy and, and Shatner, are we living in a world that is run by the equivalent of the famous Landrew? So my uh, tying thought here at the end of this is God has a sense of humor and my thanks to Hobo Sermons. I caught the Catherine Austin Fitz interview with the dark journalist uh, gentleman, and it was in two parts. And uh, Hobo had posted the second half of the show this week. The, the first half was normal, Catherine, good stuff, digital economy, yada, 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 watch your ass, the whole normal kind of narrative. Then she started towards the end getting into some esoteric stuff. And I, I believe her reactions were genuine because her eyes kind of glazed over when mm. she started going down a particular direction about certain esoteric topics and JFK and other mysteries that are out there. She made a comment about the one thing that does concern her or the couple of things that concern her more than anything else, because she believes the whole battle with the digital economy thing is, is winnable, but we just got to stay on our toes and stay informed and all of that. She started talking about what she calls the geophysical risks of the earth. And I know I'm also kind of dovetailing into uh, our other friend out there who gets into this topic. And she started getting into the whole of the sun and the solar system, et cetera. And she asked the question, why has there been a sudden investment in space technology from the 60s and especially the last few years? And she used a term that I've not really heard uh, outside of government circles since the 60s, which is what's known as a crash program. Uh, the Manhattan Project, for instance, is a crash program where I don't want to say price is no object, but you throw the best people, you throw the best money at it because you've just got to get it developed quickly. And she was at she was uh, rhetorically asking questions about why is there such an impetus to get assets into space quickly? And there isn't really an answer. And she said she didn't know what the answer is, but she said, you know, the thing that kind of caught her attention is we're massively investing in space again and getting things into orbit and getting to the moon, which begs the question, why? So my, my final wrap-up is, is we just have to keep asking questions. But this, this kind of content is the stuff I've been waiting for my next, uh, my next installment of this topic. And I, I mentioned on the last show, I wanted to get into uh, what I described as the, the big project out in Nevada. Now, what's interesting is, is that the Yucca Mountain site right now is on hold. Uh, you know, essentially canceled, but they're not, they're not going to build the site. There was a big dust up inside the state of Nevada and they said, no, you're not building that thing here. So officially the, the idea is, is, well, we got to find another site or maybe another location in Nevada, or maybe we actually will go back into Yucca Mountain. We're not sure. The Europeans are still moving forward uh, with their work. But the point I want to leave you with is, is that the human interference project and what they came up with, their theories, their recommendations and so on, are in many respects incorporated now into most countries around the world trying to store nuclear wastes, thinking about warnings and other preventative measures to keep people away from those sites. So with that, 
I'll open the floor. And I know that that was the Evelyn Wood speed reading paragraph. So some of you may have to slow down the show if you listen to it on, on a repeat. So what, what do you think they're doing? I mean, the, this whole future warning for nuclear waste, uh, the sudden investment in uh, space uh, exploration. Uh, what do you think that's all about? I mean, are they are they projecting something here, some sort of a cataclysm, which has always visited Earth every so many hundred thousand years or so? I don't know. I will say in the 1980s when uh, I was going into college, and especially in the 90s, and you have to remember the era, folks. I mean, when I when I was in undergraduate university, it was the early 90s, so we were still, we were barely at dial-up in those days. You know, there were bulletin boards and things. But being a bit of an insomniac and being in graduate school after I left undergrad, um, I was tooling around the various bulletin boards on university campuses and so on, which is exactly that. It's kind of like our Discord channel without all of the memes. It's just, you know, text. And there were a lot of people chatting back then about the Human Genome Project. There were a lot of people talking about, well, uh, our university recently met some Swiss researchers who got yanked out of our department by the Department of Defense for reasons not disclosed, yada, yada, yada. Now, do I have the copies of all of those postings and so on? No, I don't. And, and any of those servers that had those bulletin boards are long since gone. But I, I remember the conversations. I remember what people were saying. I remember a lot of people scratching their heads saying, the human genome, because there was a point in time in the Human Genome Project folks where they were just kind of cooking along with their research. And then you can literally see it in the public domain. They reached a point where a handful of universities and a handful of medical groups are just kind of cooking along. Yeah, we're mapping the human genome and going to fight disease and you'll never get a cold again and blah, blah, blah. And then literally one morning, billions of dollars just show up. And, and massive federal assets are suddenly on, on the case. We got DARPA involved. We got a group most of you have never even heard of called DTIC, the Defense Technical Information Center out of the Pentagon, who I used to work for. You've got all of these different, they're coming out of the woodwork. And it's like, we've got quadruple PhDs and unlimited money. Move your shit over here. And it's like, holy God, this isn't because you guys want to battle the common cold. What the hell did you idiots find? Well, there's evidently a lot of junk in human DNA. No, no, I know a little. I don't. I don't. So I don't much run, junk. Yes, and I've said this on this show a million times. I work in information technology. I work in change management. I work in government research. I work on a whole bunch of different things. Do I know how to write code, software code? No. Do I know the different coding languages that are out there? Yes. And I've had that discussion with a couple of you on Discord as you're exploring your your career options. But I understand the basics of how it works, and I do know how to ask the right questions of IT architects and IT software engineers when it comes to, to computer code. There's computer, there's junk computer code, if you will, in the software you use on your home computer. You know, my, my stepkids were kind of amused occasionally when I showed them little, little, I wouldn't use the word hacks, but little tricks about like highlighting or cutting and pasting text using keyboard shortcuts or things. And... The kids asked me one time, they said, well, wait a minute. Well, like, how did you know that? And I said, well, long, long ago, we had five-inch thick document books that used to come with software and would explain how to use the software. And they're like, well, why didn't you just watch the YouTube video? And it's like puff on cigarette because we didn't have YouTube. But the point I made to the kids was, as I said, there's all sorts of stuff left in the Microsoft operating system, shortcuts and things. You can right-click and do it. You can go to the to the bar at the top of your application. You can use the keyboard. But I said, they didn't remove the original instructions that are in the software. They just added something that was similar, or say it with me, folks, a pictogram of a little pair of scissors or whatever. But I said, for any of us who've been around for a while, we know, I said, hell, for any of us who've been around long enough, we know how to go into MS-DOS and do it manually through that. My point was, which relates to this conversation is, we didn't remove the instructions out of the software simply because that method isn't as common. Plus, removing it could cause some problems with how the software functions. So the stuff's still left in there. So I thought, you're telling me that one of the most, be it divine, be it chance, be it whatever, that's not the point of this conversation, about human beings and our DNA. You're telling me that the environment in which we live, which is one of the most logical, interlocking, self-repairing, self-managing systems the the biosphere of the earth but when it comes to human dna yeah i'm just gonna leave that shit in there <laughs> no sure 
No. Sure. Get in, get into I mean, the, the uh the think, think about it. there's not an animal on God's green earth that has junk DNA. They no. they they do a little bit. It's small. You'll have, for instance, uh, a bunch of researchers were experimenting with beetles about 15 years ago. They put them in a pure oxygen environment. The beetles started getting bigger because people were trying to understand why were bugs so big during the time of the dinosaurs. Well, yeah, I'm oversimplifying. environments, and that's the exactly. reason why dinosaurs were big as well. I exactly. Well, that's that like and recreate Jurassic Park, the dinos won't be as big as they are today. I mean, well, they they'll they'll also su they'll also suffocate because they don't have diaphragms. The the no, point, exactly. folks, is is there are certain there are certain codes inside insects, for instance, for instructions for larger wings or larger bodies. Now that makes sense because if the bugs should find themselves in a high oxygen environment again, that one would imagine future generations of insects would start incorporating those former elements. That's a completely different topic than saying forty percent of all the code inside our DNA doesn't seem to serve a purpose. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Compel the witness to answer the question. What? Yeah. <laughs> so V, go go on the uh, the thirty seven. Uh... Well, what's remarkable is this: there is a number, and this was published in uh, various uh, 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 papers uh, before. I think maybe like two years, three years ago. Uh, within our DNA code, the supposed junk DNA that everybody's like postulating about, there is a number. That number is thirty seven. And it appears mathematically within our code, and in, in, in it's in the human genome itself, number thirty-seven. Now, I quite don't know what the meaning of that number is or any significance, but many say that that, that is evidence that there's a design there. Like, for instance, if you know, one of the things that was postulated was if you're an artist and you want to sign off on your creation, you want to put your little signature on there. Well, there it is, the calling card. Well, and it, yeah, I forget what the movie was. I even think it had Nicolas Cage in it, the one where uh, a number kept appearing and in, in, uh, in various obscure places, and he was trying to understand why is this number, I think it was 33, kept kept popping up, and in the movie it explains it explains why. There's a lot of unknowns. There's yeah. a lot of unknowns. And it's kind of like the show I did with Frank this week. Um, I'm open-minded on a lot of this stuff. This particular topic, again, you you have the godfathers of various topics. It's it's funny. I was joking with a family member last night about Leonard Nimoy uh, picking up a paycheck in the 1970s for the the science fiction program called In Search of. Um, had some kind of moody music for the era, and, and he's got the big he's got the big collar, you know, clothing of the era. But in all seriousness, and I've said this on the show before, people can make fun of Eric von Daniken all they want. People can make fun of Nimoy. Uh, taken a form of welfare check from a from a kind of wonky science fiction show called In Search Of. But, you know, if you listen to the opening of the old, because there's a new In Search Of, they re, you know, because we can't come up with anything new, so we just repackaged the old show and, and, and redid it. But in the old program, the, the narration at the front of Leonard Nimoy's program used to say, these are just theories. These are just ideas. This Anything you're hearing tonight could be batshit crazy. But we're just throwing it out there. As, as ideas. And this is, this is also why, man, you talk about Silicon Valley folks like I used to work with, they will literally cut like the Apple people, they will literally take crap out of the lab and go find their, you know, neighbors, kids, their kids under the age of eight and put stuff in front of them and go, what do you think? Cause it's mm -hmm. like, we're all so jaded in our thinking. You need the curiosity of a child sometimes to solve problems. I, I had a relative who, when they were in elementary school, looked at a map, uh, you know, back in the sixties and they were teaching geography and they, and they said, I don't know, it looks to me like South America fits into Africa. Oh yeah. And the teacher, the teacher, you know, ripped them a new one and said, that's absurd. Continents don't move, you know? Oh okay. God. Well, have, have a cigarette, wait 40 years. Oh, look, <laughs> continents move. <laughs> it used to be one big continent called Bangia. So it's the same thing here. Is anything I've said today correct or not correct? That's not my point. My point is, is that we had a whole bunch of people kicking around ideas about the ancient world. And in Von Daniken's case, which I commend him for it, he speaks multiple languages. And so when he looked at different translations of the same either biblical texts or ancient texts from around the world, he noticed inconsistencies. 
And of course he was told, keep your head down and just, just obey and do what you're told to do. And he's like, no. So is he wrong? Is he right? That's not the point. He started asking the right kind of questions in the right way. Now, many of his theories have been shown to be off. Some of the theories he has, if we take the ancient alien aspect out of it, uh, have, have some mileage. And it's the same thing here. So I got a bunch of people, the world's best in their various fields in the 1980s. And they start kicking around ideas about, okay, we got to create a location that will last the test of time made with the best materials that will last, well, 10,000 years because we're burying nuclear waste and the stuff will kill people for thousands of years. And I find it funny, too, that the project had been ongoing for five or 10 years before somebody said, hey, maybe we ought to start studying a lot of the ancient sites around the world. They seem to have lasted a while. And of course, this is an era when they're sitting there saying, oh, Khufu built the Great Pyramid at Giza 3,000 years ago. And just two to three uh, years ago, uh, they discovered what underneath the Great Pyramid. Uh, they found fossilized seashells. So I, I guess those people who were saying, I think the Great Pyramid was built originally and the other stuff came later might have a point. Yep. So the Human Interference Project is saying, okay, get the emotion, You know, as I've often told many of my clients, let's get the emotion out of this conversation as best we can. Let's look at it with a clean sheet of paper. Don't don't yeah. let your biases impede what you're saying. So those folks started kicking around saying, how are you going to send messages in the future? Well, they started going down the language angle. Well, that went out the window after about year three. Well, we need pictograms. Well, well what sort of pictograms should we use? Well, I don't know. What did the Egyptians and the Sumerians use? Oh, wait a minute. Hmm. <laughs> Why does this seem so familiar? <laughs> <laughs> I've got people from 10,000 years ago sitting on big throne chairs looking down at us with their arms folded going, hang on, I think they've almost got it. <laughs> They're real close. They're getting real close now. <laughs> Unreal, man. Unreal. So you'll, you'll all be glad to know also that uh, I have a plethora of information uh, I'm, I'm working up on Bill Clinton uh, for my show on the 15th. Uh, hold on, hold on. I, I don't want you to work on any kind of information that I've already said. I, I said plenty. I tell you right now, fellas, I said plenty. I told Hitler, I said, Hitler, listen, here's the thing. Fellas is hot on my trail. I need you to run for president. I know, look, look, I know everybody's excited about Joe and everybody's excited about Kamala, but uh, Hillary, I need you to run. Fellas is on my tail. Bill, you're very funny about the Claudia Christian comment. Well, and Bill was on the air again. I have a He's... new program on the History Channel about America's presidents. Watch it every Saturday night. <laughs> God, that guy. He just keeps he just keeps oh, taking... slick willy, man, I tell you. Uh... CJ, you're you're sitting there quietly. Thoughts? He fell asleep. He's probably on uh, he's on his third no, 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 good, you know, good, good stuff. I think that um in, in regards to the earth cycles. I mean, you can't, you can't avoid that. And, and I do believe that for some reason that, you know, we understand that there will be some type of, of major event that will inevitably happen and we can't, we can't ignore that. So do the elite plan on perhaps knowing that, Hey, you know what, we know that civilization at some point will continue, but maybe we don't want to be here on the earth during that time period. So do we need to do something? So I definitely think that's a, a possibility um, in regards to the expansion of, of space and the government involvement, I, I, I don't know. I keep looking at it more that, yes, potentially there's something there, but it's probably just another type of corruption, wealth extraction type program of, of corruption where people are getting getting paid. You know, it, it, it exists all the time. Um, the other thing with Catherine Austin, Austin Fitz, she said something that kind of threw me off a little bit. I like Catherine. I really do. And I think a lot of the information that she says is, is spot on accurate. But one thing that I, I did not agree with her assessment that, um, you know, I'll use caution going forward with her was her speculation that uh, Putin is actively working with the United States <laughs> um, through this transition that Putin is part of the of the plan. And she is kind of over all the people <laughs> that are like with her. Oh, Putin. She's limited in terms of her Look, she's got this whole breakaway civilization thing, which I, I take that with a grain of salt. I'm not, I'm not sold on the breakaway civilization. Advanced space programs and all that other stuff. Maybe there, it is out there, right? But the point is this. She's an education secretary. Her scope on, on, on uh, in terms of, <laughs> of what's going on geostrategically and geopolitics, excuse me, is very limited. It's very limited. And well, I'd, also, like, I, I'd also apply that to her understanding of, of, of geoeconomics as well. 
Well, and it's that. yeah. Well, and in fairness to Catherine, and again, no harm, no foul. You know, anybody can ask questions. Anybody can throw theories out there. Um, she's not the only one who's gone down the the Putin the Putin road. Uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, there's there's the it, those of us in the alternative community who who believe in some pretty wild stuff. And then you got Catherine and others who are sitting there saying, I, I think it's one big plane. It's like, I don't know, even for us, that might be a stretch too far. Right. But, and, and I've said this on other shows, folks. I mean, I've, I went to the Paradigm Symposium, the, the, the one that you see on the History Channel with Von Daniken and everybody back in 2012. I've gone to other little conferences. Um, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's an accepted area of science or study or something that's on the fringe. I don't like using the word fringe. Let's just use alternative. But even even at alternative archaeology and even at like UFO seminars, I've seen people vigorously debate, you know, that they think the hill, the hill, the the couple, the hills were were batshit crazy and just got a, a bad strain of weed. Um, it, even even inside these areas, people argue vigorously, and I welcome the vigorous arguments. The other thing too about Catherine Austin Fitz and fairness is is that. The biggest and most important thing about about Catherine is similar to some other things from other federal agencies or even the work I was doing with the government is she saw firsthand and was in a position to know. And that's that's her biggest value. Yeah, I agree with that. She saw firsthand and and knew because she was on the ground that huge amounts of money. Yep. Just for lack of a better word, folks, went missing. Now Working with the Department of Defense and working with some people that are, you know, the old joke in Washington is a billion here, a billion there. And after a while, you're spending real money. Um, there were folks I worked with who had been in the government world for years, were rational, knew the government is full of shit, but were like, these people pay the bills. I, I had those folks sitting on Air Force bars with me going, I don't think it's missing. I just, I just think it's another accounting error. And I'm like, I know. It's a rounding error, fellas. I really don't think it's missing. Yeah, and I, I, I made the comment to the parties in question, and I said, look, I know that you're going to tell me that, like, if this was General Electric and, and $20, $30 million went missing, which isn't going to happen because those executives are so ruthless. If I found $20 million at GE or, or another major U.S. corporation went missing, I'm pretty sure I can get promoted by bringing that one up to the board of directors' attention. And I said, and I understand that mistakes in government are measured in billions uh, rather than millions of dollars. But I said hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars. I said the Department of Defense is sitting, strangely enough, weeks before 9-11, saying, uh, and this was Rumsfeld, for God's sakes. Rumsfeld was pressing them, saying, where in the hell is this money? You know, we've looked, and uh, damn if we know. And it's like, <laughs> we're going to get back to Fauci in a minute, but we got to, What? <laughs> You've lost trillions of dollars, and you don't know where it is. So, so come on, be honest with us. Somebody I knew at at Booz Allen, I asked them the question, and I said, "Okay, it's been done before. Private corporations have done this. Sometimes the books on a firm get so messed up. It's it's not common knowledge, but you basically reset everything. It's now the year zero. These are the from this point forward, especially after a merger and acquisition. Th these are the books as of today." You know, and that's that's how Bernie Ebers over at WorldCom was able to avoid detection for so long because he kept acquiring companies. Nobody could quite know. Well, damn! Now they've acquired another four more companies. What, like, what are the books now? Mm. Things got very confused. But to have this much money that's missing, either it's being spent on something, or it's an error, and both of those are terribly frightening. And it also goes back to the other show I had where I said. That during 2008, which was a depression, not a severe recession, and I said I met the guy that was one of the researchers that works for the House of Representatives. And his comment to me was, we've got inflation in the economy where there shouldn't be any during a, a retraction of this kind of, of degree. And, you know, we started digging into it, and I basically told him, uh, you need to tell them you need more money and more time so that they make this go away, because what you're digging into has to be special access projects, not just classified. It has to be a special, it's an off the books project for this much money to be getting pumped into the U S economy in these metropolitan areas across the United States where not that kind of economic activity shouldn't be happening in an economic contraction of this level. I made the analogy about 
in Tennessee, when the when the uh, water levels drop in certain aquifers below a certain level, you can see the town that used to be down in that valley. You know, and it's only revealed because the water level dropped to a certain level. We didn't see the inflation, or let's put that a different way, the spending in the U.S. economy that shouldn't be happening until we went through a retraction in economic activity like we had in 08. And since I had that conversation with that person, any of the detail that's out there about that, even in certain kind of fringy areas, has just disappeared. So... Questions, questions, questions. We have to keep asking questions. But for the Human Interference Project to have come up with so many similarities oh, to the got, ancient we, world. We have to wrap up. We have a hard stop coming up. Uh, but uh, I, I have no questions. Do you have any other questions? Nope. I'm, I'm good. Good stuff, Ellis. Apologize. Velas. Velas, you there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, man. Wrap up with you. Uh, uh, That's it. That's okay. it. Cool deal. I know we have a, a CJ has a luncheon appointment coming up. Uh, Velas, thank you for joining us, folks. Velas will be back on the fifteenth of July. So until then, Velas, we wish you a safe travels. Uh, best of uh, best uh, best traveling wishes, and thank be you. safe out there. And we'll see you soon, buddy. Take care, everybody. Thank you all. Enjoy your weekend. Cheers. And happy Father's Day. And oh yeah, happy Father's Day, man. Happy Father's Day. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, gentlemen. Happy Father's Day to you all. All right, everyone. Cheers.